Hello and welcome to another episode of The Wild Dispatch. I'm Robin and I'm back with more skills and stories from the wild. Today we are donning our rubber gloves and diving deep into the world of animal butchery. We are going to do that with Candice Lewis, who has very kindly offered to lend her time and her expertise in all things to do with breaking down animals. Now, I don't know about you, but there have definitely been more than a few times that I have been lucky enough to get an animal on the ground and then thought, oh crap, what now? Thankfully, Candice was able to answer all of the many questions that I had and every kind of situation I can remember and think of. So thanks again, Candice, for answering all my questions, and let's get on with the show. Welcome to the Wild Dispatch! Uh, so I'm very excited to have you here today. It's just kind of by chance that I happened to discover you across the social nuances of the web. But I, yeah, I was doing the thing that one does on the internet and I discovered your your handle, which is Lady Butcher. And that immediately just thought, oh, you'd be perfect to come on this this show. Obviously jump in and correct me if this is wrong, but you are a butcher. You've been a butcher for quite some time. You mm-hmm. are a butcher of farm animals and wild game. You're also uh, a chef and a, and a cooking instructor. And also, I think, I believe you do instruction with butchery as well. Is that correct? Yes, that's all true. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so um, we did have a little chat beforehand and uh, I, I've got to say, you got it like a great, slightly lateral um, story, which, which I love, you know, because I think people have a thing in their mind about, oh, wild game and all that kind of stuff. There's a kind of a normal route that people take. And I love the transition that, that you made. So uh, what I want to do is go like right back to the beginning of your story and kind of, we can, we can go from there if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, thank you for having me also. Um, yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. So, well, it's interesting because I feel that the community is represented as this machismo, all male, you know, type of, um, but that's what butchers and hunters accustomedly uh, are. Yeah. Are just, but the truth is, couldn't be further from that, I feel. Um, I actually started out going to art school. I have a bachelor's degree in fine art. I was a sculpture major at California Institute of the Arts or Cal Arts. Okay. Which churns out a lot of people from Pixar. Oh, does it? Yeah. And so a lot of people. Where and where is that? It's in Los Angeles. In, okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And is that is it's that where in, you grew up? No, I actually grew up in Baltimore, Maryland. Ah, uh, okay. So I'm from the East Coast originally, and then I decided to go do my undergraduate in LA, um, at Cal Arts, um, which was an amazing experience. Yeah, sounds it. And yeah, it's it's a very eclectic school. So I'm I'm like jumping around a little bit now, forgive me. So, but like your, so your upbringing when you grew up, was that, did you have much of a kind of connection with uh, nature at that point? Or did you, were you kind of outdoorsy or was it just, you know? No, no, no. I mean, <laughs> no, that, that's, not at all. that's cool. <laughs> not at all. I grew up in a city in a Jewish, to a Jewish family. <laughs> okay. So where I 
no. My father is a mortician, though, which is probably what led me down the path of doing butchery. Oh, so wait. So death. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so he was kind of working on what, what exactly does a mortician job involve? Sorry, we're going about uh, talking about someone else. but <laughs> Yeah, yeah. There, a mortician is somebody who arranges funerals and does the entire talks to the families and then sets up the burial. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So I guess you grew up and you were always kind of around the, mm -hmm. the idea of mortality and exactly Interesting. that was my practice actually in art school. Like I did a lot of uh, a lot of sculptures that were based on like my own life and my own story. Yeah. So I did a lot of work around the death industry. That was a big part of my like my practice, I guess, if you will. Interesting. Yeah. So. So so okay. Well, now we're jumping around, but like, so this is LA. And how long were you mm -hmm. in were you in LA for? Just four years while I did my undergraduate work, okay. and then when I graduated, I moved to Northern California. Okay. Mm -hmm. I well, so during that period, I graduated in 2010. That was the kind of the height of the financial crisis. So there really weren't a lot of jobs available. Mm -hmm. I want. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my art degree, but I played around with a few ideas one of them being uh, special effects makeup but it just wasn't a good time to like really get a job to be honest and just a lot of places weren't hiring so I moved to Northern California because that's where my parents were living at the time okay. so I just had some sort of financial security and I actually got a job in an art gallery so oh interesting mm -hmm. I worked in an art gallery for about a year it was an internship and at the same time I was a barista and then I got a tattoo apprenticeship and I worked at a tattoo shop for over a year so all like super creative kind of different roles at, at right so, and, and was this in the, in another city as well in northern California this is yeah this was originally in Mountain View actually oh okay yes um and then but the job I worked in San Francisco yes. I lived in Mountain View and I commuted by you know train it's like 30 minutes or something, isn't it? If you go, it's in the in the Bay Area, right? Yeah, it's in the Bay Area. I think it's more like 40 minutes to an hour. I can't okay. remember. It was, I used to commute like wildly long commutes. <laughs> <laughs> so at what point did you feel like the things that you were doing in the kind of artist circles, at what point did you think, oh, I should look at this butchery option? Did it just like suddenly appear on your horizon at some point? Well, so my whole family is into food. So my brother is a CDC, a chef de cuisine, and my sister's a pastry chef. Okay. So we're a very like food centric family. And this butcher shop opened up. I was looking for a job. I just like couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And this butcher shop, the fatted calf, was opening up a brick and mortar in Hayes Valley in San Francisco. And my mom's like, why don't you apply? Like that would be really fun. That'd be something interesting to do. So I did. I applied as soon as I graduated in 2010, they didn't read my resume or anything. And then a few, I, I guess I never got a call back. And then a few years later, I got fired from Whole Foods. <laughs> and I was looking for a job because I still was doing like menial labor because it's just being a working artist, you just don't make any money. So I applied again, I think this was 2013. Okay. And I got the job there. And that is where I learned how to butcher. And I did it because just for the like the love of food, there wasn't really a 
I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to become a butcher now. Mm. Um, it's just something that's yeah. like your whole family is kind of comfortable with that mm -hmm. world, right? So Exactly. And the fatted calf is a, a pretty well-known butchery there, right? It's like a... It is. Okay, that's cool. Yes. I, I did yeah, a little bit of research. Yeah. Go did on. you? Oh, yeah. I mean, oh, I, looked, yeah. I looked it up after you said, and it seems like yeah. there's a whole thing. They kind of set up another place just out of town as well, right? I think. Yes. They have the Napa location mm -hmm. still. And actually, the place I work no longer exists. But um, I think they have something in the Ferry Building now. But they're, they've written cookbooks, uh, various cookbooks in the charcuterie. Uh, they wrote a jerky book. Uh, Taylor and Champonia are very talented. They have a, like a breadth of work that's beyond butchery. It's all very heavily focused on charcuterie and they're really good at it. Yeah. So, yeah. It's also interesting. And we talked about this a little bit before, but um, I love the transition from working a lot in sculpture in you, as you're studying, mm -hmm. you know, the world of, you know, artist expression i guess is <laughs> i'm very I'm not expressing myself very clearly there but yeah, yeah working in kind of shape and uh understanding f like physical form i guess in a way and like mm -hmm. I mean, a good understanding of that that must have felt like it gave you some kind of advantage working in the world of butchery it's, it's yeah. almost like one is creating and one is taking away but does that make sense no, it does actually. I mean, so uh, because it's a reductive process um, and my background, I did a lot of anatomical work. Mm. So I understood the human anatomy very well, which then informed my ability to understand animal anatomy because it's very similar. Um, we're just bipeds versus quadruped animals. So I was able to, I feel quickly be able to understand the anatomy pretty pretty fast i'd say i was decently proficient in butchery by two years into working in the industry yeah and so you said two years you felt like you were you know at a competent level yeah how long were you working at the fatted car for i worked there i think three to four years four okay. years i was four years i became i started out as you know just a grunt and then i ended up becoming the one of the managers there I like the term grunt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like, you know, like the, you would do like the menial labor. Like uh, you're really like you're doing counter service, you're cleaning, you know. Okay. I was imagining. I wasn't you butchering know, at first. Oh, okay. I was imagining like you you yeah. get you get the task of standing next to the hand grinder and you just have to stay at the back <laughs> that's what i was imagining oh yeah but, i mean you do have to do stuff like that but it's not hand though it's electric <laughs> <laughs> so like, maybe that's saved for like punishment for people who've been yeah been naughty <laughs> exactly uh but no i mean the stuff they did there was it's interesting too because craft butchery is very different than what you're going to do at like safeway for instance yes which is can box in box out. So all the primals are already broken down. They're already boned out and you're just cutting them in steaks. This is a whole carcass mm -hmm. that you're cutting into that you're then cutting down. So I, it was really different experience. And a lot of people I know that told me they were meat cutters head versus this whole craft butchery. And we had no bandsaw. Everything was done with by hand, like, so with a hacksaw or wow. all that stuff yeah but i imagine that gives you a much better understanding then 
of how it, how the whole process works. You can... Right. It, 100%. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I have another question. Uh, yeah. How, okay. You move, I, I imagine this is just like a curiosity thing for me really, but yeah. When you made the switch over, you know, and you kind of grew up very much in a, or like spent a few years very much in like an, an artist community. How did, did, you know, your friends are going to, you're going to have like a whole group of friends who are like artists. Mm -hmm. How did they respond to the idea of you butchering animals? Was there any kind of interesting or funny reactions from people or were they all just supportive? I think they were really supportive. I mean, I, I San Francisco is a very eclectic, at least was a very eclectic place where people are open to all sorts of things. And I mean, it's funny too, because I feel like most of my friends have always been vegetarians. <laughs> yeah, that's what I... Even in... Yeah. yeah even in high school but yeah i don't know i mean they think they thought it was cool because it's just such a lost art it's not something that people generally can do these days so i think that they are more interested in the the craft practice of it than thinking about it as like uh slaughtering animals yes it is interesting isn't it because it there is a feeling i mean i guess that's why i asked that question because i was curious because mm -hmm. i mean i've made i guess over the last five or so years i also came well, i came from a city and moved to a kind of a more rural environment and have been fishing and hunting with a bow and you know processing animals and yeah it's just, it's yeah. it's interesting to see how people react and a number of people i know who are like vegans or vegetarians mm -hmm often react in a far more positive or open way than than I expect. expect. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. I would have expected. Yeah, that, that was curious because I, I thought that people were going to have a, there'd be, you know, yeah. particularly, you know, vegans and vegetarians were going to have a problem. But so far, everyone's <laughs> at least to my face. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, honestly, I would say that the people that I have the most negative reactions to what I do are people that actually eat meat. Really? People yeah. who eat meat but then are disgusted by the process i've come about i've i've met more of those people than i have with vegans that were hating what i did really which is so yes which i never thought would be a thing but yeah people are they want it they want it in the styrofoam package wrapped in plastic and they don't want to know where it comes from and they want it to be boneless and yeah that's so interesting. I, that's really surprising. I, I really, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I wonder what that is. I guess it's something which hunters are often aware of and kind of complain about as well, that there is just a complete detachment from it is the fact that meat is a living, a living creature and it's not always pleasant, you know, and well, it's never pleasant, but like the taking of a no. life is like a, it's a significant thing, but people don't, yeah. don't want to think about that at all no they want to be detached from it like and to such a degree that they want to pretend that it's not what it is yeah. i don't know i i that's why i enjoy like the you know working with people or talking to people that actually have killed animals themselves because they understand more than anybody what the what is going on it's not just you know uh shapeless thing that suddenly shows up in your grocery store refrigerator <laughs> yeah <laughs> you yeah. know you just might like mindlessly put it in your cart without any thought whatsoever yeah as, as to what definitely. it is yeah and that is a thing 
yeah and it's probably a bit extreme but i have kind of started to harbor a feeling which i guess i haven't really shared with anyone yeah <laughs> until now but <laughs> it does feel a bit like it, it you have to if you want to eat meat you have to kind of be prepared to take the life of an animal i don't know if that that's mm -hmm. maybe that's not you know that's just my personal opinion i don't say that's what everyone has to do but yeah it just feels like for me to be honest to myself you know if i want yeah. if i want to eat those things then then that's kind of the process that i have to acknowledge and and i will admit like the first animal i took was a bear and that was kind of tough and i think we talked about this before in a previous conversation yes. but, but yes. you know that's a bear once you take the hide off definitely has mm -hmm. quite a human form right. and that was definitely took a bit of getting over for me at first you know however many years ago it was but i got over it pretty quickly <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd say even the first time I walked into a slaughterhouse, and I've been at that point, I had been butchering animals for 10 years before I actually went to one. Mm. And I remember being kind of nervous. And the I remember that because everyone's warning me, they're like, just so you know, the way they set up slaughterhouses is you go through the, the end process before you get to the beginning. So you see the you see the primals being broken down, and then you finally see the carcasses, and then you see them breaking the carcasses, and then you go through the freezer, and then you finally get to the beginning of the line where they do the slaughter, and the temperature changes. It's like all of a sudden it's room temp, and it feels like a shock to your system. Oh. And then there's the barnyard smell, and at first I was like, <gasps> you know, I got a little like squeezy, and then yeah. You know, you get to the beginning of the line and then you see them, the, you see the, for the, in this instance, it was a cow in a knocker box that was about to get stunned and then they fall out and then you see them like seize a little and then get hoisted up and it happened very fast. But I remember it happened in slow motion when I was watching it mm. and it was kind of a shock to the system at first, but then once you see it, you kind of become desensitized and it's just part of the process did you go uh was that the only time that you went to see that process or did you go multiple times i the only other time i've only gone to a slaughterhouse once but i've seen farm kills many times yes yeah yeah which is completely which is completely different because it's so much more intimate mm -hmm. um than the slaughterhouse because it's just so like industrialized their station and with farm kills it's just much more organic um that does make a lot of sense i haven't seen the process that you were talking about you know in a processing place but it definitely seems like it would be in some way far more like mechanized and mm -hmm. yeah i don't know there's got to be something a little bit more intimidating about that as a as a place kind of mechanized right process of taking lives and, and churning through you know versus mm -hmm. i guess the i guess it is a bit more of a like connection with the animal isn't it especially if it's someone you know processing or killing an animal that they've farmed for with for however long you know beforehand right and they have like a personal connection to it and i mean there it usually has a name <laughs> yeah <clears throat> it's just uh and then you know it all is done on the property you know it's whatever i mean i've seen a lot of pigs get killed on farms so you know they get 
everything done kind of in the same place where it gets shot, just maybe like a few feet away. Yes. So are stunned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. it it kind of is what it is, and you definitely get yeah. As with anything, right? Like it's yeah. You have like a process of getting used to it, and then and then it's and then it becomes kind of normal. I mean, I right. remember. I remember. It's surprising how I've probably told this story before, but um, you know, I was hunting pigs when I was in South Africa. My wife is South okay. African, so we lucky enough get to spend a bit of time over there. And and I was with a a hunting guide hunting wild boar there, and. Um, yeah, it was just surprising because I was relatively new to hunting at that point, and I shot a pig with a bow. And we mm -hmm. and and some for some reason pigs are very able to, um, they're just like fighters, man. Like sometimes yeah. you can shoot them, and it's like a perfect shot, like a double lung shot with a bow. Mm -hmm. Should mean that they, yeah, you can't always guarantee these things, but should mean that they are down and out very quickly. But this one we we left it for a while and tracked, tracked the blood and went through that whole process, mm -hmm. which was great because I was learning how to track blood and all that stuff. And, and it was probably right. half an hour. We found the, the pig and it wasn't, um, it hadn't like passed at that point, but it was like still trying to get up and then kind of getting down and getting up. And, and it was like this moment where for wow. me, for me, it's pretty, you know, that's a pretty hectic thing to see, you know, like the beginning, yeah. beginning of, the whole hunting thing and you're like wow this is this is intense mm -hmm. and i think my hunting guide who was a woman uh she, i look over and she's like almost giggling at this point like <laughs> wow wow how much have you seen <laughs> yeah seriously probably a lot to be honest yeah that's the thing right yeah. like you just you just i guess you just get cold to it um, yeah. Anyway, I digress. That's a struggle. That's a struggle to see that for your first hunting experience. But then, at least if you see that, then you're prepared for every other one you do. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um. So anyway, we've kind of gone all over the place a little bit now. I know. <laughs> sorry. Could, no, it's not your fault. I just yeah. couldn't. I couldn't resist the uh, like the the directions that we were going with this conversation. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So we'll go back to like you were at the fatted calf and you were there for mm -hmm. like three or four years. And was that mm -hmm. like that you said it took a couple of years before you felt like you were kind of like at a good level of competency, but what was mm -hmm. the, what was the process like? Was it intense? No, uh, unlike some apprenticeships, this was a working apprenticeship. So they were teaching me how to butcher while I was also getting paid to do my job. So okay. it was kind of when I had time, when I had finished all my tasks, I would, uh, get, to be on the block and cut meat. Uh, the first thing I learned how to break, I believe, was lamb. Okay. And so it was just basically just learning how to hold a knife the right way because there's a butcher's grip that you will uh, execute where you actually turn the knife over and cut down. Um, and so, that was... Can you talk yeah. through that a bit more? I don't know if you... Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that was the biggest thing about butchery is how you hold your knife okay and i think a lot of people have a tendency to cut in a chef's way where you hold the knife with your pointer finger and your thumb and cut down but in fact what you want to do is you want to make a fist and turn the blade uh down like you're stabbing something mm. and that's kind of how and then drag towards your body or really away from your body towards like maybe depending on what hand you use but away from your body to the right or left um 
and that's a butcher's grip and that's actually how you have the most control when you're doing boning work okay that's fascinating so what would the negative be of the chef's grip that you mentioned before you have way less control because you're using um you end up using your wrist more and that will become a weak point and then you just won't have the what the ability to have the energy really to continue it's all about like how you use your body when you butcher mm. um i think that that's part of the finesse um and also it'll give you the longevity to be able to stand for hours and do something that's repetitive right because if you're working as a butcher you're going to be processing a lot of meat then you've mm -hmm. got to be able to it's got to be sustainable exactly and i do think that the the grip holding it that way tends to have because you have more control there's a lot less uh cut marks into the meat so therefore it looks like a cleaner cut you're able to make much rather than jagged little cuts mm. which i tend to see especially with hunters i tend to see they it's obvious that they're using the tip of their knife and they're holding it the other way because the meat is just so like jagged and ripped up, I guess. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. I'm seeing it yeah. in my head now. There are definitely jagged cuts. <laughs> uh huh. And there's ways of doing it. And also, I mean, the other thing too, you also learn is you don't always have to use a knife. A lot of the time there's uh, the fascia will hold muscle groupings together and you can actually just use your bare hands and rip it from the bones or other connective parts of the meat. You don't even need a knife in some instances. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it... that's a big one. Okay, because I do definitely, it's like, um, I guess it almost relates, like if you're moving through the forest, don't try and go through the bushes because that's not going to work. You've got to take the little trails that are already there that the animals have created. In a way, the, that... the, the fascia is kind of... Yeah. That... That's a great uh, way of like explaining it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely, I do try to do that. Like I probably do more cutting than I should, but yeah. Cause I, I have butchered my own animals admittedly, probably not very well. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But... You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, slicing through those fascia and just pulling all the, the different segments, it seems a lot tidier than just trying to hack through stuff. Yeah, and I mean, just follow it. Really, the key to it is just following the bones as closely as you can. Yes. So just having the one side of the knife hitting the the major part of the skeleton, predominantly the spine. And if you're doing that, you're probably not going to gouge any of the muscle groups. Yes. Okay, so I think I'm not trying to think what we should do. Maybe we should just jump fully into this kind of thing. But I'm also yeah. curious about... Um, you know, like, so did they, did the fatted calf do stuff with wild game as well? Or was that? No, uh, they didn't do anything with wild game. Actually, San Francisco has a law against it. Oh, really? So you can't process, you have to be grandfathered in. So there's actually a place in Northern California called Buds, and they can process game or like uh, places in Sacramento where I currently live there, they can process game, but there's something there's a stipulation where you can't process game in San Francisco in the itself. You have to have be grandfathered in. So we didn't do any game. We only did animals that were um, raised on farms and then processed through the USDA. 
Yes. Okay. So when did the wild game butchery start then? Because I'm guessing it's obviously very mm-hmm. similar principles. You're just transferring over from farm animals to, to wild game. It actually started when I had my son. I couldn't work at a butcher shop anymore because mm. I couldn't work full time. And I just thought, well, why not see if I can make a make a living doing exempt work um, from my house? It's because it's custom exempt because it's just getting given back right to the person that killed it. So I don't have to go through any kind of like uh, USDA inspections. Oh, so okay. Mm-hmm. Is that what that means? Exempt. Sorry, I don't know the language. Yeah. So exempt work is exempt from inspection. So yeah, there's a lot of butcher shops that do do that. So Buds that I mentioned prior to the earlier is an example of that. So they do custom exempt. So the hunter brings in their deer, for instance, and then they butcher it to their specs and give it right back to him. Okay. It's not getting sold to the general public. It's his property. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess that makes it a bit simpler. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I started, I started doing that and um, yeah, just because I wanted to continue butchering, but I couldn't really go back to the shop because mm-hmm. um, I had to watch my son. So he would just lay in his little, you know, little nappy thing and I would just butcher animals in the kitchen. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. But I bought very professional equipment. I'm not just doing it on a kitchen table. I bought a butcher block and I have a professional refrigeration unit and deep freezer. Sweet. I have the whole setup. That's cool. So mm-hmm. basically you're just like geared to go and that's how you operate now. Like you have you have mm-hmm. everything going and yeah, you can just like, yeah, that's great. I can, I can do, basically I still use a handsaw. I don't do anything with a bandsaw because I just don't have one, but also it's completely unnecessary because game animals i don't get them in complete carcasses because the way the hunters that i've had um, a relationship with break them off so they can carry them into their pack so they're pulling off the back strap they're pulling off the hind quarters they're pulling off the shoulder from the actual carcass Mm. um, because they're going they're going out and then putting it in their pack and walking for miles yes yeah yeah which is what so, you're, which is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yes, but some people who hunt locally for deer, for instance, will just bring the whole deer. Yeah, that's yeah. what that's what I, I. This is kind of for better or for worse. For some reason, I and actually I realized because I listened to a podcast beforehand, um, a long one one I listened to uh, quite a while ago. Um, it was with a meat scientist. Yeah. And and that was quite interesting. And I, I, if you've got thoughts on this as well, I'd love to hear them. But um, they were saying yeah. about like aging meat um, mm-hmm. and the whole process of aging. I'd love to pick your brains about that. Yeah. Um, if that's something that you guys were, were doing. Um, but leaving muscle on the bone is a much better mm-hmm. way to age meat because if you cut it all up, then it doesn't have anything yes. to stop it from contracting and then it becomes tougher you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And also, I mean, I actually do know a lot about this. So I had a, I worked in a meat processing plant. I still do, okay. but I worked in another one in Oakland and we dry age meat there. And that's kind of like, but I've dry, dry aged meat in, uh, at the fatty calf starting all the way then to now, but dry aging meat, yes, it'll contract more. So, and it'll lose much more water. Okay. And you're exposing all sides to air 
So there's so much more loss mm. because you have to cut that bark. That's what it's called on the outside away. That's like the crusty, the crusty stuff mm-hmm. that gets there. It, it's like jerky essentially because it's completely dried out and that's not really edible and it tastes bitter. Mm. So you don't want to eat that. So if you do it on the bone, you have a much better chance of having a better yield because you're going to have 20 to 30% moisture loss if you even just leave it on the bone. Mm-hmm. But if you have, I've seen people do it boneless cuts and they lose probably 50% of the product. Just water evaporating out of it. Exactly. That's crazy. So, yeah. Ah, okay. So I actually, more as a function because I don't have um, temperature controlled space here, mm-hmm. you know, which is I yeah. think probably common for most most hunters. Yeah. I just uh, done wet aging. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, where you, of course. Yeah. yeah. So it's and just that a vacuum sealed bag. Exactly, and that's worked really, yeah. really well for me. You can just keep it in a cooler or whatever, keep it regulated at the right temperature for a good long time, and it's it's great. That, yeah, wet aging is modern industrial aging. So like that's how everybody in the game does it. They vacuum seal everything in either dip cryo or um, in a vac vacuum seal a chamber, um, and that sits for months. I mean months. What what's dip cryo? It sounds cool. Dip dip cryo is a type. So there's a whole world of industrial packing. Um and dip cryo is basically where you have something in a the same kind of vacuum seal bag essentially that you would use for um the the chamber vacuum, but it's in water. So it pushes all the oxygen out and it completely ha- it's hermetically sealed. Yes. Okay. Because you know how sometimes you can get air pockets yes. in the in the vacuum seal. This basically eliminates that, and then it's just completely sealed. Wow. Yeah, that's it's next rad level machine. Yeah, it's <laughs> like the the industrial equipment. I think that was my uh, interesting part because I worked at this place called Cream Co. and that was kind of my first introduction to the whole uh, industrial meat packing industry. And that place started out as this when I was working there, it's just eighties, really rudimentary machinery to, uh, they have a full rail now and a roll stock machine, which is little, uh, pockets where you put the ground bead in and the ground meat in, and then just roll another piece of plastic on top. You know, you see those little uh, square packaging that has a like, ground beef in it. That's mm-hmm. roll stock. Oh. So just now they're, now they're just, you know, light years away from where they were when I started with them. Ah. Uh. It's interesting. The machinery, I got a whole awakening with machinery and learned how to operate huge industrial grinders with lifts and all of this uh, Gemini grinders and yeah, all sorts of things that I was never exposed to in craft butchery. Okay, that's cool. Probably good to have the craft butchery knowledge, right? And all that understanding Mm -hmm. and then know what things to like leave behind and what things to keep, you know, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that every every job I've had has informed the next. Hmm. You know, everything has. Okay, so I would love to ask the kind of process actually before the animal gets to you. I'd love to talk through mm-hmm. some of that stuff. And you've already yeah. mentioned a little bit about knife work, mm-hmm. but but you know, like I guess, obviously, and I should kind of caveat that there's probably different rules for different animals as well, because I know, and maybe there isn't, maybe it's all the same, but like, at least with deer, um, is it ungulates, is that the term? Like versus Mm -hmm. things like bear, 
I think that there's some kind of slightly different things in terms of timing and the meat and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, one's wearing a giant furry blanket, so that's right. going to change. That's going to change things. But so, I guess like first of all, you know, what's what's best practices in general for like us? Like, how much time is too much time? <laughs> you know, uh, things like. Yeah. If there's like if you if you're taking the the guts out and stuff, if you like nick the gut, what's the best practice there? Or like, is that the end of the world? Or what if it's a gut shot? You know that kind of stuff. You know, right. do you do you even take animals if they've been gut shot? Like stuff like yeah. that. I just asked you a bunch of questions, so we can go through that again. Yeah. Um, well, I'll start. Uh, I guess the beginning as far as temperature. So temperature. I mean, it really depends, obviously, on what temperature it is outside. If you're in the winter, mm -hmm. obviously you're in refrigeration, so you don't have to worry about time. It's not of, of the essence um, versus the 90 degree days. I would say actually anything like 50 and up is when you start having to have cooling concerns. But there's a myriad of things you can do to chill your meat, um, whether it be carry a dry pack full of dry ice. Um, you know, your or check your terrain and see if where you're hunting has a Creek Yes. and you could chill your meat near the water source. Yes. Uh, or if you can even just bring ice packs, that's really heavy though. Um, or have ice in a cooler at your vehicle where you're eventually going to store your meat, like a big cooler with ice. That's the best case. I think that's the easiest way. Cause then you don't have to carry anything. And how fine sources. Yes. I've done, I've actually done not the dry ice thing, which is, I've never thought about that. I'm guessing yeah. dry ice is much lighter. So that's, that's good. It is. Um, yeah. So that would be a good thing to have in a cooler, but usually I just have a bunch of ice in my cooler at my vehicle, which might be a few miles right. away from the, from the animal. And I have actually done that. I'm glad that you say about cooling something in a Creek because I've done exactly that, but I was kind of like, oh, am I doing the right thing? Is this just like, <laughs> You never know. I think, I think bringing it down to temperature is more important than, um, I mean, obviously there can be certain things in the water that mm -hmm. you don't know about, but you're going to cook it. Yes. So, I mean, whatever thing is on it, essentially, other than like, uh, you know, something that you can't control, um, like a parasite or something like that. Yes. Um, you're going to, it should be able to be cooked off. Yes. Because even drinking water sometimes has lead or cadmium or, you know, whatnot in it in general. Okay. So I would be more concerned about chilling, getting the meat down to temperature than putting it in water. It, it can change the uh, exterior. So it can kind of denature the outside um, if you don't have it in a waterproof bag. So I would definitely say, because a lot of hunters put their meat in like cotton bags and things like that. I would say put it in a waterproof bag and then put it in the water. So that way you don't have it exposed to it, but it'll at least bring it down to temperature, oh. which would be below 40 degrees. Okay. So I just like threw the thing in the water, like no bag, yeah. no bag, nothing, just the carcass straight in there. Right. So I would not do that because <laughs> only because it's going to alter the flavor. And in what way? So it denatures the meat. So it actually changes it chemically so that it tastes different. It kind of uh, takes away a lot of its like natural, uh, the, the way the blood mixes with the water. And, okay. and it actually changes the color, if you notice, like it'll get lighter in color. The, the way in which I did that before 
was it's like a full just it's literally just gutted out so the only thing exposed mm-hmm. is like the the cavity inside the ribs you know right, everything yeah. else is is covered in fur so i'm guessing that's not going to be the same issue no it's not gonna be the same issue okay. it's, that's that's like basically if you're doing it that way then of course you know it, it has its it's protected by its coat okay cool right okay, good i'm that, talking that. about just cut meat Okay, good. I can sigh. Yeah. I can give a sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's okay. That's okay. No, yeah. that, that's good. Okay, cool. So, but obviously, if it's all broken down, then putting that in the water is going to be yeah, that's going to change it. Okay. The only reason I say that is because sometimes it's easier. Maybe you're not anywhere near a water source, but you have to carry the what you have to a water source. Therefore, you break it down prior to getting there. Yes. Yeah. 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 For some reason, stupidly, I've taken to tying my deer to like a stick and carrying it <laughs> oh that's a good idea <laughs> As like a, it yeah. is except it's like yeah. a hun- hundred and twenty pounds or something <laughs> so, yeah it's so heavy yeah <laughs> which i uh, oh yeah uh, that's not always the wisest thing for my spine i'm sure i'm gonna pay yeah, the price for sure pay maybe the... have go hunting with a partner so they could carry the other side <laughs> yeah yeah that did actually yeah. happen just for that couple, yeah. a couple of weekends ago that was a nice perk i have to say it felt like a third of the effort when you've got someone else right. to help you. It's oh, so good. oh, for sure. Okay, so getting it down to temperature is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, but also, okay, if if you know you're gutting and you nick the guts a little bit, what's the kind of mm-hmm. what's the kind of how what's the best procedure with that? Do you wash it out or do you just leave it? Like what what do you, what would you say is the best thing to do? I would say wash. It depends on how extreme it is. Um, if you nick like the intestines and you know the fecal matter starts to spill out, it technically contaminates the meat. So I would wash it out as quickly as you can. So bringing water is always key, I think, because you don't want to de- you don't want to because con- there's bacteria in there which then will contaminate the actual meat itself. Yes, and that can travel so, right, like it can actually per- mm-hmm. permeate through the meat to some extent. Is that right? Yeah, like burrow into it. Wow. Um, because the bacteria is alive and even though the animal is dead, it can go into the tissue. So I would just rinse it off as quickly as you can. Um, but the other good thing too, is, you know, make sure you, when you're gutting, make sure that you have the blade turns towards you, not towards the guts. I mean, I, that probably goes without saying, but just having good, good night skills, I think. And knowing how to get up there correctly will yeah. eliminate that from even being a possibility unless you shoot the guts and then that's a whole nother story it is it is one that happened recently for my friend <laughs> really and then it's, there's not a lot of recourse yeah what's the what's the situation there like is it like the inside of the cavity i mean it was a pretty i mean this is yeah, for sensitive listeners, maybe this yeah. is a moment where you don't want to hear. But yeah, the shot went through the back ham and came okay. out came out like mid-rib on the other side. And so the guts, yeah. I mean, uh, bless him, the guy that I was hunting with, this is first big animal, um, first big game animal. So, you know, oh. there's all that excitement and everything. And I'm trying all to right. teach him, teach him like, you know, okay, we're going to cut open the carcass and everything and teach him the same thing you were just saying where you can get your fingers in. I'm just jogging the mic get yeah. your fingers in and like cut you know away from the guts and everything and mm-hmm. and um you know he's 
I showed him just a tiny bit and then he did it a little bit and they just nicked the intestine just the tiniest bit, you know. But what we hadn't figured out at that point was that, uh, you know, a seven millimeter, seven millimeter magnum bullet had gone right through the, the intestine. Right. So as he then cut it further, the whole thing was just exploded. It, it was just a complete yeah, crime scene in there. So he thought <laughs> he thought that tiny nick in the guts was like the product of... Uh... Oh, the product no, no, of like no. the, the the shit explosion that he then experienced. <laughs> and it's like, what? I didn't think I did it that wrong. And I'm like, no, right, no, right. This is not you. This is not you. Well, yeah. it was the shot, but it wasn't the, the the knife work. Yeah. So I would say, yeah. Yeah. How do you salvage that? Yeah. Is there a way to salvage that? Like, I mean, we washed it mm -hmm. out with like a few like liters, probably like a gallon of water. Yeah. But there is a lot of contamination going on in there. So. Yeah. I, is it kind of like the ribs, obviously, and the tenderloins inside? You're just gonna lose. Mm -hmm. You're just gonna lose that and throw it away. I I would just for just out of safety precaution. The, nothing is guaranteed bad. I feel like. I mean, even if you have an animal that's been out of temp for too long or some sort of exposed to something, you don't know. That's the issue. It's like you don't you don't know whether or not it's gone bad. It's just a risk. Yes. Because there's no way, the only way to know is to take it to a lab and test it. Yes, absolutely. Or which you could, which you could do. Or try it and cross your fingers. <laughs> yeah, uh, that too. I mean, listen, I've done, I've done that before. <laughs> I've taken the risk because I was like, well, it's been out of refrigeration for this long, but it's probably okay. Like, you know, I mean, I've eaten bacon that I left in my backpack over, like, overnight, and lived to tell the tale. So. <laughs> <laughs> but i mean it's all just it's about risk really you're you want to mitigate risk so i'd say if you don't want to do that then yes i would toss it but if you're willing to see if you get food poisoning then yes you can you can do that you can, you can roll the dice <laughs> yeah you can roll the dice i mean a lot of animals have things in it that you can't even see right like uh 157H7 is the most deadly form of E. coli. You can't taste it or smell it, but you it exists in a lot of animals hmm. or trichinosis and wild pigs, you know, and or bears, bears you know. Yeah, yeah it's, it can be there. It's mostly for that, you know, and uh, the way to mitigate that is just to cook it well done. Mm hmm right so cook it past it what i prefer to eat meat at yes so which is why a lot of the time those types of things get versus having like beautiful steaks you end up cutting it cutting it into grind or sausage because you have to cook it so thoroughly yeah. you can also get it tested for those things too yes yeah i mean to be honest it's like just adapting to that sort of thing it doesn't mm -hmm. doesn't bother me like um like I, I got a bear a few years ago and started really using like crock pot recipes and things like that and it's, right and it's maybe even my fantastic uh, my fantastic <laughs> maybe <laughs> even my favorite um favorite meat because it's just so good like you put that bear in there right. and make, and make like a pie like a i think i have a guinness and porcini pie recipe oh, that, wow. I, that i adapted from bear uh, from um from beef and it's oh it's just knockout you know yeah and well and also their all their 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 muscles are all very worked in general so cooking it for a long time is gonna break down all that collagen anyway okay cool so right like, I need yeah. to, like so what okay we've gone through like that process of 
getting the animal um, cool, making sure that you're kind of damage limitation in terms of if you like just be super careful with the knife work. Mm -hmm. Is there, um, I'd say like you're saying about time. I know this is a very, you know, obviously I'm not going to quote you officially on this, <laughs> but like it really depends on what temperature you're in right now or, you know, when you're hunting. But like, for instance, where you are right now, it's hot, hot, right? Like in right, Sacramento, it's, very hot. Mm -hmm. it's like 90 something degrees. Mm -hmm. How much time, you know, for instance, like I shot a buck. Uh, the first buck I shot this year was like... Um, early on because it was like opening weekend of archery season in California, mm -hmm. which, which is a zone. And that was early July, you know? So, yeah. and I, and it was like at 10 o'clock in the morning, I shot the thing. So by the time I strung it up, had it on my shoulder, <laughs> carried the whole thing out probably three miles. Um, you know, that's a few, probably three, two and a half, three hours. Yeah that it's, you know, starting to warm up, like temperature wise, it probably got, it actually was thankfully quite a cool day. And I've eaten, yeah. the, meat, I've eaten the meat and it's fine. Right, <laughs> and, right. But, you know, is there a kind of point where you feel how much time in that situation, say it's 75 degrees, mm -hmm. how much time do you think like alarm bells should start be going, start going off, you know? It's also a full car, yeah. it's not broken down. Yeah, of course. Well, so it's exposed to less oxygen when it's a full carcass. So you, I think you have even more time. Oh, really? Because if it's exposed to the air, if you have all that hot air pressing against every piece of it versus it being completely intact, um, obviously with its guts taken out because that will spoil it faster. Yes. Um, but we, but you know, you want to take that out first thing when you got it anyway, the gutting yeah. is the first part of the process anyway, but um, I think it'll have less of a chance of rotting as it sits than it being broken into pieces and being exposed to extremely hot temperatures in yes. some ways i guess the idea is obviously when you do break it down the air will circulate and if it's a lot of cold air it'll cool down faster but mm. it'll also spoil faster too if um, it's in exposed to the opposite temperature okay because it's curious i guess there's like a balance isn't there in my mind about yeah the animal is warm and you want to get that heat escaping as quick as possible off of it yeah so it's like really depends on if the i mean i guess the temperature is probably going to be most of the time cooler than the animal i'm just kind of talking out loud here <laughs> yeah no worries i mean i think it just i think it depends i it's hard to say because yeah it really you know it's it's all about it's science so it's all about uh the process of uh of it's spoiling and i mean essentially as soon as something dies right the meat starts to go bad yes. right it's it, it's in the process of, it's in a death process the minute that its heart stops and it's drained of all its blood and then suddenly you know then rigor mortis kicks in and then it's just it's starting to go naturally bad it what makes it good is when you control that process so yeah. getting it as Getting it below 40 degrees as fast as possible lessens the the process of it going bad. So it just, it suspends the, uh, it suspends it from uh, spoiling. That's all the cool down process will do. Yes. So the, uh, as quickly as you can, I mean, I think I've seen 
<laughs> I've seen animals that have been killed and out of refrigeration for hours, like five, six hours mm. and whole carcass uh, gutted and then split. And okay. it's been okay. And it's been okay. It hasn't been too hot. I'd say it was around 60, 70 degrees in that those conditions. Yes. I think if you're in 90 degree heat, you're going to be working against the clock because just of how hot it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I so, think that, yeah. So it's a thing to think about if you're in hot temperatures, you've got to like think about putting the trigger or taking a shot with a bow. <laughs> you're like, what's Early the in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. That's the tricky thing, I guess. And I it's guess, hard, it's, yeah, it's hard to say. No, I mean, it's, it's so, so many factors, right? Like, um, mm-hmm. so forgive me for trying to like pin you down. <laughs> pin you no, down I mean, one. I, and I've, I've studied a lot about meat science because of me working and processing specifically as you need to know. And I have a HACCP license actually. So you have to know temperatures and you have to know how to mitigate risk, right? Because, uh, HACCP is hazard control analysis. So, I mean, I definitely have somewhat, I'm not, I don't have a degree in it, but I mean, I have somewhat of an understanding of the, of, you know, critical control points. And I do think that, you know, it's, it's really just about doing your best to get to those, to the place where you can get it down to the temperature you need it to be, however long that takes. I mean, it really just depends, you know, on how prepared you are for this situation. And I think that that's a big thing with hunters. It's like, you have to be prepared. And I notice a lot of the time they're not, they kill a deer and they don't even know how they're going to butcher it. They call the butcher shop and they're like, Hey, can you take this? Well, we don't take the, we don't take game. So, and then just calling around asking for someone to process their animal. It's like, you should call your processor like a week ahead and say, do you have space in your intake for a, 75 pound deer possibly because you know you're going hunting for uh something you know you're going hunting for a buck or 150 pounds whatever it be and if they say yes okay oh i know i can go there this week yeah versus it being like it's in my trunk will you take it (laughs) that happens so much i it's kind of incredible i'm like why don't you have a game plan like i know you know you're not necessarily going to kill something today but just check Oh, I love it. Yeah. L- literally, literally a game plan. <laughs> yeah, a game plan for your game. I know. But having that, having that is, uh, I think, the biggest part of hunting. You need to know exactly, exactly how you're gonna deal with it once you've killed it. Yeah, I know it makes absolute sense. But I, I would hazard a guess that there's an element of superstition, as well, because. I've definitely, okay. I mean, I, I like process the animals myself, but so I haven't mm-hmm. been in the situation where I'm like, oh no, I have, you know, like a t- ticking time bomb in the back of my truck um, and I need yeah. to go to a butcher. But yeah, I can imagine people might be like, oh, I don't want to like call and check around in case, you know, that's going to curse it and it's not going to happen or something. Yeah. I, I don't know. But then you have like this big carcass on your hand and you don't know what to do with it. Yeah. It's stressful, right? Like it's, yeah. it's definitely stressful yeah Um, so okay do you like i mean obviously you processing a bunch of wild game uh, for people uh have you got any have there been many times where you uh, this is a two-part question where someone you know they've been driving around in their truck and they're like oh butcher butcher (laughs) i haven't made a plan for this and they come to you and you have to turn it away because you you think that it's past 
past the plausible time to process it. Uh, that hasn't happened to me yet, but uh, I would say that the majority of the time, because I have a relationship with my customers at this point, okay. but I would say, because it's, you know, it's it's at my house, it's not at a shop, so it's not like they're just calling me. Like, a lot of the time they'll email me and say, I'm going out on a hunt. Okay. And uh, I likely this weekend, if I have something, it'll be this weekend. So they are planning ahead. Um, or sometimes they call me like, you know, that day and they're like, I have this, but that's broken down into pieces. So they're going to refrigerate it. Can you process it this weekend? But uh, yes. when I worked at butcher shops, that would happen often. Okay. So that mostly they would call and like I said, they would say, oh, I have this in my trunk. Can you process this right now? And then we, yeah, we'd have to turn them away because we're like, no, we don't have the space for it. Um, yeah. Also, that being said, for custom exempt work, like even if you're going through uh, any kind of butcher shop, it is at your own risk. So if you do have it for out for too long, I have no way of knowing, you know, that how long you've had it, unless I question it. Yes. But it, I'm not, we, we aren't, we as processors aren't guaranteeing that it's spoiled. You have to guarantee that for yourself. Ah, uh, okay. So it, you're not really you know, it's not a case of handing it over, then suddenly it's your responsibility. It's like, right. it's, it's already, not. so that's, yeah. that's good to know. Yeah, it's the responsibility of the, per that's why it's for the person. I. That's why it can't be sold to the general public because we have no idea how it was handled. Yes. Right. So is there a way, I mean, it's kind of this follow-up question is maybe a little bit uh, lost the wind in its sails now, <laughs> possibly, because <laughs> it may not be relevant if it's not, exactly your responsibility is there ways in which you judge if an if the meat is okay in an animal obviously smell is a thing but are mm -hmm. there are there other ways that you judge that is there any kind of other thing that is a known those are just like the information that you have is how you yeah. judge it um i mean so you could tell if something's spoiled because it'll smell like really terrible it'll smell like blue cheese really i've and i've had firsthand experience smelling rotten meat and it is strong like you know it's bad and there's that old saying the nose knows well I... it does like if something is spoiled it'll smell off and you won't want to eat it regardless of you know whether or not you, know, you won't want to eat it because the smell is so bad and this yeah. happens with you know poultry will smell like just stinky and beef will smell like straight up blue cheese and pork will smell sour. Interesting. So the smell is basically your biggest indication of spoilage. Okay. Um, yeah. Good to know. I mean, and then there's things you want to cut away too. I mean, this is, I guess, a little bit separate, but you know, so say you have a shot in the shoulder, um, yes. especially if you do um, archery and it hits, you know, one of the major arteries in the shoulder and then you know there's going to be a huge like explosion of blood inside that muscle mm. well you're going to want to cut away all that bruise really yes you're going to discard that bruise so what ends up happening is there'll be bone fragments you know and this is a learning curve for me too because obviously when i started butchering for the most part animals are entirely intact there's no exploding bones or blood or things like that, or like a bruise, there's sometimes bruising, but not a, lot, a whole lot, but you want to cut away all that bruising. Cause that, not that it's necessarily 
going to poison you, but it ta the taste is an off taste. Interesting. It's that really dark red. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you'll, you'll exactly. be able to tell. It's like jelly-like. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And dark red. That's all blood and bruising, and you you want to cut that all away. You want to trim that away from that animal. It's yeah, it's interesting because I used um like a, a different kind of uh, tip on my arrow, like a broadhead. Mm -hmm. and it was like an expandable one one and i've always used like simple just simple blade broadheads mm -hmm. but that expandable broadhead i guess there's pros and cons the thing is it's going to make sure that the animal is definitely going to die quickly right and you're going to retrieve it and i mean the thing barely went four or five yards you know it it dropped straight away but i've never seen anything like it when i took the the hide off mm -hmm. the, the amount of that kind of coagulated gooey yeah. dark red all across all mm -hmm. the ribs it took a lot of work cutting all that off yeah you know it was it, it was, does it was a lot of work but i'd saved a lot of time if i was having to track that animal then that could have been <laughs> yeah another like, problem yeah um, i think you have to like just take the lesser of two evils i guess in that sense yeah so um, I did have another question here, but I think you've already kind of answered it in a roundabout way. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. about um, like taxidermy stuff. I'm guessing if you have mm -hmm. a relationship, like more of a private relationship with your customers, you tend to get the meat in, process it and, you know, deliver it back. But you don't, it doesn't sound like you get many animals in their hides. Cause I was wondering if there's anything you ever do where you take the hide off and then let just like ship that over to a taxidermist or something for, for people. No. So part of uh, the deal, I guess is, is that I don't, I don't kill any animals. Right. So I've had farm, I do farm stuff, process farm animals for people too. And I don't kill the animals. I have, I refer them to someone who I'm friends with, who's also uh, a butcher who does custom exam who kills animals and then i also don't do any cape finishing so i don't take cape the animal and pull the hide off um mostly yeah. for sanitation reasons yes um so and if you take it to any processor likely they're going to tell you that you also have to do that that you have to dehide it yourself oh okay and field dress it before you take it to a processor i think in some instances maybe they'll make an exception but from my experience they're going to ask you to remove it yourself that's good to um know. yeah but mostly for sanitation purposes just because um, there's cause so much a mess on that hide like and the, it's dirty it's just that it's been exposed to everything so yeah, you yeah. don't know what it's it could contaminate other animals that the processor is dealing with absolutely absolutely so yeah no good to know uh okay so i've got this thing here um like uh basic rules of butchering like butchering 101 kind of thing mm -hmm. if you don't mind talking a bit about that talking through that process if someone wants to have a go at doing the thing themselves or if they you know want to do like more of the more basic cuts um i'd love to just pick your brains about that stuff so like tools for the sure. job or like basic mm -hmm. what is the essential equipment you know like uh, i think knives is a thing and also like mm -hmm. you were saying about the technique with those knives but like what knives are like the essentials and what are the nice to haves i would say it's pretty simple you really don't need a lot you just need a boning knife um Okay. And depending on the size of your hand, five to six inch boning knife. Um, 
and it doesn't need to be expensive. Uh, I think there's a lot of marketing out there that makes you think that you do need an expensive knife, but I usually work with knives. They're about 20 to $30, maybe 40 bucks. Mm. Um, because you're going to end up stripping the blade so much that you're gonna have to keep resharpening it. And there's no reason and it's going to whittle away quick. So there's no reason to buy something super expensive. So a boning knife and then maybe like a hand hacksaw in some instances. Okay. And a hand hacksaw that's, I'm imagining it's like, you know, got like a metal frame over the top and then mm -hmm. it's just like a single blade, right? Like a, like a replaceable part at the bottom. That's a hacksaw. With the right? teeth. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And they make, they make travel ones, which I think for hunters would be a good investment. I don't think that they're that expensive. I have a, a large one that I use in my, for my processing, but all you really need to do is if you're not familiar with the anatomy, because there's joints that you can, there's joint work you can do where you don't even need a handsaw, but for the inexperienced butcher, I would say you could hacksaw probably where the legs off at the spine. Yes. Um, okay. So it's, if, unless you completely bone the whole thing out, which a lot of people do too, but I like, I've told many hunters this before is that if you can leave it bone in try you know if you think you can carry like a bone in shoulder break you should if you can carry a bone in leg you should try to do that a lot i see people bone most of it out and mm. the problem too with that can be is it's hard to determine what cuts you can get from that because it's like an exploded mess yes you don't have the map exactly and especially the way some people cut, it's even more difficult to determine. I mean, I can usually figure it out, but I, I would say just try to leave it bone in. And in that case, then all you need is a boning knife. That's yes. It. Okay. Yeah. That's great. That's what I've, that's what I've, that's what I do. <laughs> yeah. That's you good really to don't hear. need much. <laughs> yeah. So um, you're saying about retouching the blades, like when is, I guess you obviously have to have it super sharp before you start. And then do you just use yes. like, a, like a sharpening stick, like an iron? to, to um, touch so, it up what's your process yeah well a honing rod essentially all that that does is uh the ba the blade gets bent the more you use it so it'll bend to the left or right mm. um so what a honing rod does is it kind of just helps re-center the edge of the knife it doesn't actually sharpen it unless you're using diamond which then does strip some of the metal off um, but what I usually do is I have a Japanese whetstone and I'll sharpen my knives with a Japanese whetstone as you go uh, in the beginning before I, before I cut anything, if okay. my knife needs it, I mean, you could tell you touch the top and if it feels, you could feel the, the edge and if it feels dull, then it's time to just re just pass it a few times on the whetstone. Okay. And so then mm -hmm. that will you know, you pass it over the whetstone and then you'll be good to go for, for a while, like for, yeah, a, few, for a few hours. I would say it just really depends on how heavy duty of work you're doing. Mm. If you're cutting through, if you're dulling your edge by hitting a lot of bone, uh, like then you're probably gonna have to sharpen it more frequently. Um, also the cutting board, strangely enough that you're using matters. If you're using a plastic cutting board, it actually dulls the edge of your knife faster versus wood interesting because the wood has give and the plastic doesn't plastic actually dulls knives much quicker than people realize bamboo is terrible don't ever use a bamboo cutting board <laughs> <laughs> yeah no we that's a good point yeah i never even thought about that that's so true i thankfully i use a wooden board so that's that's good but yeah 
yeah I never thought the plastic would do that but yeah well and in industrial processing you have to use it so those knives go dull so fast hmm okay so um i kind of got an impression for what you were saying before but like when you're i guess you say you get like a whole carcass how are you mm -hmm. processing the animal do you hang it up or are you laying it flat on a butcher's table like um i mean it depends on the environment i'm in right now i don't have a rail system but i prefer to do hang butchery um when i work in shops i've done a lot of hang butchery it's easier uh for two reasons if you can set that up in your house i highly recommend you just have to make sure you have the t strength in your the ceiling that you're hanging the hook on because yes. it will bow your the weight will bow it but um it makes it easier because of um you're using you're not using your physical um what is it uh, exert you're not exerting yourself physically because the the gravity is doing all the work yes so and i'm five two okay so doing hang butchery is much easier than it is doing table because one i'm not very tall so when i'm going over a carcass on a table it's i exert a lot more of my physical uh what i what's the word i'm looking for i i just exert myself more because yeah. i have such a small stature so yeah. um it's after it, men who are you know tall tall men have an advantage doing table butchery versus doing like hang butchery but it's still going to be more work for anyone to because i know i've i tend to butcher on a t on a table and you yeah are, you're like doing a bit of a juggling holding a whole leg up you know trying to prop it with your shoulder and like mm -hmm. you know you're doing a bit of a dance so to speak yeah <laughs> i mean i spots. small stuff it's not a big small animals like you know birds um or even like lamb i it's or pig i guess it's really just beef i think i'm thinking of is like just so much easier to do uh hang so um a few quick round questions like rubber gloves obviously yes mm -hmm. but how often like how often is that a thing where you're like changing them over or what's the kind of is there any kind of rules about that or it's just on gut like, no no there is a law in california that was passed at one point that said that you did have to use rubber gloves but that was quickly rejected because you can be completely unsanitary wearing gloves too it's really just about hand washing okay. um i would say you don't have to wear gloves it's preference i like to use i like to use gloves like when i clean like poultry especially chicken for instance because there's just so much possibility of a coli yes. and with that i change my gloves every single time i touch anything other than the chicken like if i were to clean chicken and then i have to go to the sink for something or pick something else up i'll take my glove off because it's cross-contamination yeah um yeah. but i mean beef they do say that the oils in your hands and the heat can tend to change the composition of the meat too so i mean maybe wearing a glove will also be an advantage for that but a lot of people butcher barehanded and just wash their hands really frequently yeah Okay, good. To I know. think you wash your hands more actually when you have no gloves. <laughs> yeah, I think that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, and do you um ever process turkeys as well? Have you ever worked on turkey? 
Yes, I've worked on a lot of turkeys. And do you follow the same rules with chicken as with turkey? Or is it because it's wild, it's a different kind of deal? What, what you know, about like avoiding E. coli and stuff like that? Yeah, I think just birds in general, they just are, I don't know, they have like this oozy quality to them. It's really just about me touching it and finding it like, kind of, I guess I'm, I love poultry, but I'm also turned off by it when I butcher it. <laughs> so yeah, I use a lot of gloves. I think, tur and I obviously I've, you know, butchered domestic turkey too, that or a turkey that's, you know, grown on farms and stuff, and I treat it the same way. Hmm. I've got another question, which is something which I've done. And I just want to see if this is something that you kind of <laughs> approve of is yeah. um, I've at times used when I'm like processing and breaking down the animal, I use like a, a some kind of spray, which is like half water, half vinegar or something like that, which is like, mm -hmm. I think it's acidic, right? Like an, yeah. like an acidic spray just to give it like a quick coating to, I guess like protect create like a barrier for the for the bacteria is that does that make sense i think i read yes. that somewhere yeah okay. um they're in that's uh like an organic way of cleaning something i guess you would say it's not uh, like a chemical cleaner so a lot of the time like in organics they'll use vinegar water cleaner things to clean so that's you know you can still it's still consumable. It's not a point. It's not a poison. Yes. So I think that, yeah, that's, that's totally, I think, acceptable and a good practice. It's a, a very sanitary thing to do. Perfect. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also a... if you spray half water and vinegar on dry aging meat, you can kind of knock off the bacteria and keep the bacteria from growing in a, a way that if it's starting to go like blue or something, instead of in green versus it being nice and white when you're dry aging or curing meat putting a half water vinegar thing is a common practice okay and yeah. so that that bluey green color is that something that also happens with wet aging or is it only dry aging only dry aging if okay. you have any kind of mold growth and wet aging it's being exposed to oxygen and you don't want that yeah so because there is an anaerobic and an aerobic environment aerobic meaning that it's with oxygen and anaerobic without. And the whole point of doing something in wet aging is that it's without oxygen. Because yes. oxygen is the enemy of any kind of meat because it's going to create all sorts of bacteria. Hmm. Okay. Is there kind of general rules about different animals? I mean, I guess if you're butchering, you haven't been necessarily too involved in the aging of wild game uh, or- No. Okay. so. Maybe. But I, I think that it, aging wild game would be no different than doing anything that's raised on a farm. Yes. Um, what's kind of like a good amount of time? Do you know what the kind of principles are? Like what's considered a mm -hmm. good amount of time to, to age animals, both in like wet and dry aging? So I would say for dry aging, a minimum of 30 days wow. is wow. when you're going to actually start receiving any kind of benefits. There's uh, naturally occurring enzymes that break down uh, the muscle tissue and tenderize the meat. They create more of an intense flavor, and that can only happen through time. Um, also, you know, the right humidity and um, lack of moisture, you know, dirt, like it has to be the right center of humidity will 
um, you know, make for the most ideal environment. I believe it's 70 degrees is the perfect humidity for dry aging. Um, you want to have it in an ideal temperature uh, for wet aging. Uh, you can, I believe the industry standard is 60 days. Okay. In refrigeration. And then from there you want to freeze it and then freezing. You can freeze things for however long you want. I recommend six months to a year, but. Okay. So freezing for too long is what, what happens then if it's more than six months or a year? Uh, it can start to crystallize and you start to lose more water content and then it just sort of, um, there's shrinkage that happens. Um, it's not necessarily that the meat goes bad. It just doesn't taste as optimal. Yeah. It's not as optimal in flavor. Um, cause you could freeze something for instance, I freeze fish when I get it so that I can have it raw. Okay. Um, so freezing is, has benefits. I don't think, I think people think, oh, I'm going to freeze it. It's going to be gross. That's not necessarily true. I think if it's for too long, it can be, you can get freezer burn. It can just lose a lot of moisture because there's purge that happens when you, uh, defrost something and all that will, all that is escaped moisture that was inside the muscle. Okay. Interesting. And is there with freezing stuff? I tend to just turn my freezer down to like the absolute maximum cold. Is that good practice? Yeah. I mean, does it not, yeah. I guess it doesn't make any difference once you're below a certain level or, or is it just good to be as cold as possible? I think as cold as possible. I mean, even when you're like butchering meat, if you can be in a cold environment, that's good too, because then you're keeping the meat as cold as possible. Yeah. So there's no spoilage happening. A lot of people butcher in cold rooms. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I tried to butcher mm -hmm. early in the morning when it's still cold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes absolute sense. So I've got another question. Uh, this is a bit of a fast round. Sorry, I've got lots, all these little things that have been no, like in fine. my yeah, mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so silver skin and fat on venison, mm -hmm. that kind of situation, mm -hmm. like silver skin, is that something you should just always just take, take off as much as you can? So like, for instance, on a back strap, mm -hmm. there's like a huge long mm -hmm. piece of silver skin there. Mm -hmm. That's a case of flipping it upside down, you know, with the, the skin, like a fish, yeah. skin on the ground, uh, skin on the, not the ground. <laughs> That's not how uh, we... on the table, <laughs> on the table. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and just like sliding that blade under to get the silver skin away. Is it, it's, mm -hmm. it's definitely a necessary thing to do with, with as much yes. as, as much as possible. Uh, yes, because especially in backstrap, because it's a tender piece of meat mm. and the uh, silver skin is chewy. There's no way to really break it down, especially since you're not cooking it for a very long time. So it's not going to render or it's not going to break down in any way. Not that it really would anyway. It'll always remain kind of tough. Okay. Even aging. So it, yeah, I would always, well, uh, yeah, aging, you still want to cut it away. Okay. I mean, you you keep it on there to age, but once it's done aging, you still want to cut it away. Ah, that's like an important detail. Yeah. Yeah. So I, so like if, if you were going to age, um, the backstrap, I would try to leave it bone in. So I'd try to keep the spine attached to it and you don't necessarily need the ribs, but at least that, uh, feather bone on the back. When you split it down the center, mm. keep it bone in. So there's more, it's protected because that's going to, it's a lean piece of meat. So it's, if you dry age it, it's going to just wither down into nothing. If it doesn't have like some sort of bone to protect it. 
So that's going to stop it from contracting too much. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Exactly. But if you're exactly. wet, if you're wet aging, it's not so necessary because it's not going to lose all the moisture and contract the same way. Right. Exactly. It's a completely different process. So, um, but always, but it, before you eat it, always remove the silver skin and venison fat just tastes sort of foul. I don't know. It has like a, I think it's, that's more of like a taste thing more than anything else. Like a personal preference of flavor. Exactly. Like when I make, when I grind meat for deers, unless usually I just grind it as is because most hunters are purists and they don't want to add anything to it. But for personal consumption, I would add fat, like beef fat to it or pork fat. Yes. Yeah. That... Because I like it uh, not so lean, but. It makes complete sense. I mean, um, I've taken quite a lot of animals over in South Africa and often I get butchers to process the meat there. And that's, mm -hmm. that's very standard procedure there. They have some very good sausages, which are a mixture of, yes. you know, beef, pork and wild game all together. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, they often bring fats in from other animals, but I've got to confess, I actually quite like the taste of venison fat. <laughs> Do you like it? Okay. I don't yeah. know. Some people, some people hate it. So it's really, I, that's what I mean. It's just a matter of taste. It's definitely a mouthfeel thing as well, right? Like, cause it's, mm -hmm. it's pretty thick, uh, like quite dense in your mouth. So mm -hmm. that might be why people don't like it. I can understand it. But from a flavor point of view, I think the first buck I ever got um, had a lot more fat than the other ones. Like it had like an inch thick or more fat, yeah. fat on its like hind quarters. And oh, well. I, I took some of it off. <laughs> yeah. But um. It, and if anything, it kind of tastes just like fatty lamb does. Um, it, uh, it, lamb has a lot of lanolin in it, which makes it, it has that greasiness. Yes. And it's that same quality. And a lot of people don't like that. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I don't love it either. I don't even like lamb fat, to be honest with you, because of that, because of that greasy mouthfeel. Mm. Yeah. But it, like I said, it's a matter of taste. It's you know, Some people love it. Some people don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely um so i yeah i've got one question like like a couple of small things like small little questions that i was just curious about mm -hmm. when i was thinking about the conversation that we were going to have and uh like i guess if you've processed any like big wild game animals like what's the kind of biggest or weirdest wild game animal that you've you've had the job of processing um i mean i would say probably i would say antelope was actually the oh you know what wild boar is the weirdest because of its spine oh yeah what's up with its spine it had the one that we processed had a spine that was almost like a dinosaur um and it was so bizarre and i think it was weird for me because it was so i feel so familiarized to pigs yes and uh it's supposed to be similar anatomy but its spine was almost like uh it had like this hunch on its back mm. that was like where this spine had stuck up and it was extended and almost the way of like a not a tyrannosaurus what's the yeah a stegosaurus you know, stegosaurus it has spine like that and i always thought that that was the weirdest it was like a dinosaur animal. It was so strange. Yeah. And I think that that was the weirdest one. And it was really difficult to bone out. And the customer wanted it completely boneless. Mm. And because I had it whole. And it, 
it was really difficult to bone out. It reminded me a lot of the way that uh, like lamb has that big part of its spine sticking out, but it was so much larger. It was it was odd, I guess. I had it was the first time I'd ever experienced that. Um, how big and was, it was I had to do? It. How, it was pretty big. It was like probably the size. It was probably almost as it's probably like. 200 pounds yeah that's a decent sized pig <laughs> it was really big i mean because all the other game animals that i've gotten i've never i don't really get them whole per se so yes uh, i think if i worked in like a you know a meat processor that did wild game i would get more holy animals but because these people they butcher it themselves i just get it in pieces yeah it's not as like dramatic as that <laughs> but yeah yeah i think that that's the weirdest i think that's the no, weirdest no, one i've ever it, seen it makes a lot of sense it's interesting i didn't realize because you've got the perspective of coming from like farm pigs and right. i i only have the perspective of wild boar oh okay <laughs> and, yeah so and, for me that was crazy yeah it's funny because i didn't realize that it's different for domesticated pigs because i uh -huh. that at least it's like a thing that i've kind of had to be aware of when you're shooting like when you're thinking about shot placement with a bow don't shoot it too high because if you shoot like middle or like high end up accidentally shooting high middle you know if you think about a side profile of a pig right then the trouble is that high spine kind of those stegosaurus parts of the uh -huh. spine mean that you're actually just shooting meat you know you're not actually shoot you know you might actually uh, yeah you know you're not doing the damage that you want to be doing through lungs or anything like that so that's curious. I didn't realize that pigs kind of don't have that. So I wonder what, what causes that. Like they just have a easier life. Yeah. I, guess. <laughs> I think it's just their genetics. They're just, they're to me, they're just different. I just, I think people tend to think that like boars and just domesticated pigs are similar, but they're really not. I mean, I think that they couldn't be more different. Their flavor is different. They, their anatomy is different. The color of the meat because it's wild is different yeah I, I don't know they're almost like different animals in a way yeah it's it's so curious though because also there's a weird thing at least might be folklore but like if domesticated pigs escape it mm -hmm. doesn't take long before they grow tusks and hair like right apparently i don't know if that like oh, is that fact true? checker fact checker everyone <laughs> yeah <laughs> if that's incorrect please let me know but that's yeah. what i've that's what i've been told and i'm i'm i believe it for now <laughs> i mean i know that there are all domesticated animals are like are um bred to be that way so that there's all different types so the you know there's duroc berkshire those are different breeds of hogs that are bred for their meat right so yeah. they're genetic they're really if you think about it genetically engineered animals yeah over time because we're exactly because we're we've selective breeding to create these types of animals because they taste better for us yeah. Um, they're not, they're not, they're not in nature this way. So, you know, they're, they're just really different than what you find out in, in nature. It's kind of controlled to be more convenient for a meat. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, they taste better. Yeah. yeah. They taste better. Like, I mean, I think the mark of a good farmer is someone who understands the science of the animal and how to breed it selectively so that it has the right fat to meat ratio and it's a whole 
process and knowing what feed does what to the animal. So versus when it's wild and it just eats whatever it wants and it tastes however it's going to taste because it's been eating acorns or it's been eating, you know, whatever, yeah, like grubs. Uh, yeah, I think that all of that um, in, impacts the flavor, which I don't think people realize, but yeah. It does. I mean, like if you're eating game birds that are eating berries, it's going to taste so much better than if it were a starving animal. Yes, it makes absolute yeah. sense. And people, there is a bit of that kind of talk amongst hunters who say like there's a good time to shoot bear, you know, mm -hmm. and like a bad time. And I was lucky enough, the bear I took was right at the end of berry season, which is right, right. about now, actually. So I should probably... <laughs> make a plan go out there yeah but yeah. um the the meat was outstanding you know really really good yeah. flavor but then people also say there's rumors of like you know the dumpster diving bears that they don't taste good because they're eating all kinds of dodgy stuff so yeah. i believe it i i totally believe that i think that i think it depends on where in the world you're hunting you know what they're eating the time of the year i'm sure because i mean i'm sure if they're you know, high, getting close to hibernation too. I mean, they're going to pack more fat on as mm -hmm. well. Yeah, yeah. So there's a whole life cycle that you have to be aware of. It's not as easy as just going out there and finding something. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of seems like a nice overarching <laughs> thought to <laughs> uh, to kind of bring us bring us to a, to a close today. I, I, I wanted to just ask, well, first of all, thank you very much for taking the yeah. time and talking through everything. Um, but is there anything else that you feel like a burning desire that we've missed today? Anything that you kind of hoping to, to kind of mention or talk about at all? I did want to say that for hunters specifically, if they save the pluck and don't discard that, that's a lot of really good uh, tasty meat that doesn't necessarily always get utilized. Okay. So like the heart, the liver, oh. the kidneys okay Save, saving that or if you're butchering your own animals like uh, farm animals and mm -hmm. you save that or the call fat things like that that can be repurposed into like other part food that you can make um that often gets discarded i mean that is when you've got an animal down you're like oh i have to get this out, get this mm -hmm. get this out quick i guess it's easy to just be like all right don't need that don't need that but so I, you mentioned a couple of things there um heart liver kidneys ever do you ever like is lung ever a thing that you guys yeah lung i love lung lung is really good is it okay it's so good oh, i have to pick your brains about a, a recipe for that at some point in yeah. the future yeah. um and then you said the cool fat that's so this is something i've noticed sometimes with animals is that some of them have it a lot and others don't so much but right. is that the like the kind of web of mm -hmm. web of fat that's around some of the organs that you can just pull off is that correct yes yes Okay. Um, that is, that is the call fat and it's easier than save. If you can save the intestines, it's a ton of work, but I mean, then you can make your own casing out of it. So when you make sausages, then you don't have to buy it. Yes. You just have to purge it, clean it by purging it with water. Oh. Um, so you could save the intestines too. I think that if you have the ability to, it would behoove you to do that one. Cause you're going to save money when you're processing for sausage. Cause you have your own casing now. Not the casing's terribly expensive, but and it's also cooler, I guess. Yeah, it's like the whole and, the whole process is yeah. natural. 
And then call fat and for, I like to use it as for sausage patties. I do this for a lot of our customers is I will make sausage patties and then I'll wrap them in call fat. Mm. So they're almost like little, uh, little sausages encasing. Um, and it tastes really good. Um, right. and I'll do that for, it doesn't matter what deer, antelope, whatever I'll wrap it in the call fat. And that is a technique I actually got from the fatted calf. They do a lot of sausage patties. They're often called fat. Oh, I have you can some. put like fruit, fruit underneath it or something. Really? Okay, mm -hmm. cool. I have some in the freezer, which I, you know, on the deer that I got recently, I, I took it because I thought, oh, I'm probably going to use this. I had thrown it away previously. So yeah, I'll, I'll have to save it. Yeah. Save it and yeah. pick your brains on that. Yeah. So how can people find you and follow you? Is there, um, anywhere you want people to go and check out your stories and adventures? Yeah. So they can find me at uh, lady butcher on Instagram. Um, okay. That's basically my only source of uh, contact other than my email. If you have any inquiries, like you want me to butcher an animal for you, teach you how to butcher an animal. I do all the above. So um, I, I also am a, a chef i worked uh, in restaurants um i just worked an event this weekend where i cooked uh argentinian uh meat boards for a winery so i kind of a jack of all Great. trades i also private chef too so if anybody wants that um but they can contact me through my my uh instagram which is lady b-u-t-x-c-h-e-r uh yeah okay Okay, good. There's like a little nuance in this. Yeah, kind of exactly. Great. So. Well, thank you very much, Candice. That was amazing. And um, yeah, thank you. I had a blast. Yeah, great. I'll um, I'll, I'm sure at some point, if it's okay, I'll give you a phone call and pick your brains a bit more. <laughs> oh, of things. course. I, I'm yeah. I'm happy to like. Honestly, it's cool meeting other people that are interested in the same stuff. I don't really get to talk about this stuff that much. Okay, sweet. Yeah, well, I'll have a bit more of a think and maybe we could even get you on for another episode at some point in the future if you'd be, yeah. if you'd be open to that. Definitely. I'm definitely interested. Thank you. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks again, Candice. And uh, yeah, we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Awesome. Yes. Thank you so much, Robin. So that's another episode processed, shrink wrapped and in the freezer. Thanks everyone for listening. I hope you found it useful. You can follow Candice at Lady Butcher on Instagram, but that is actually spelled Lady, B-U-T-X-C-H-E-R. You can also contact her directly on Insta or via email, which is Lady Butcher, the same spelling, at gmail.com. But I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks again, everyone, and until next time. <laughs>